0: Can we challenge perspectives when it comes to sustainability? Are we moving quickly enough to create an equitable fashion industry? And how do we remain hopeful in a world ripe with climate disasters? Big questions that we're deep diving into with Samata, the CEO of Red Carpet Green Dress and published author of The Tribe Empowerment Journal. In this episode, we talk about how to change people's mindsets and foster welcoming spaces, how we can create a more inclusive fashion industry, and why we need to stop glorifying being busy. Hey, it's Duff Dixon, and welcome to the podcast. Here, we get into the minds of some of the most conscious humans around the world to understand how our actions affect our mental well-being, happiness, and the planet. Because self and planetary healing is really an inside-out job. So let's unpack this human experience together so that we can live wide awake. Samata is a British-born Ghanaian entrepreneur working across fashion and medium. She's the CEO of Sustainable Oscars design campaign Red Carpet Green Dress and the published author of The Tribe Empowerment Journal, a fashion designer's resource book. Red Carpet Green Dress was conceived by Susie Cameron, who's an actress and environmental advocate during the press tour for her husband, James Cameron's film Avatar. Together, Samata and Susie focus on bringing sustainability to the red carpet and beyond. Samata has created brand partnerships with United Nations, Tesla, Vivian Westwood, Amani, Louis Vuitton, Swarovski, and Reformation, just to name a few. Samata thank you so much for joining us I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you today it's been a long time I've wanted to get you on the podcast and now we're finally here so I'd love to start with sharing a little bit about your early age and to how you kind of got where you are now so I understand that zero waste started at a very young age for you and it already created quite a meaningful lens so would love to understand a bit more about your journey with fashion and sustainability and how you ended up where you are now.
1: Yeah, sure. So I am a British born Ghanaian. So I was born in Cambridge to two Ghanaian parents who came over from Ghana for my dad to study his PhD at Cambridge University. So my introduction to culture was always through a very hybrid lens. I had two Ghanaian parents who were really focused on making sure that I had an understanding of where I came from, and where they came from and what certain things meant to them from how they made the food to the clothes that we wore and just a really close connection with nature my my dad's from tamale which is in northern ghana my mum's from accra which is a capital city so i always had this understanding that things and people move they come from places we used to drive from accra to tamale when we were younger and i would see it change from a city to a more rural kind of area and I would see like green takeover and I remember how free and happy it made me the more we got into kind of the, the the more rural parts of Ghana so it was just amazing my parents were always passionate about understand me understanding where I came from where things came from and understanding kind of being part of a globe being part of a planet of different communities who speak different languages and who see things differently so I didn't understand it then, but that was kind of giving me a foundation of sustainability. It was it was kind of embedding me in a knowledge of caring about things, caring about communities, caring about nature, appreciating nature, and also just not wasting things. You know, we, we were so... My mum and dad were so efficient, and it really wasn't about sustainability, and it really wasn't about anything kind of soapboxy. It was just about efficiency. Why wouldn't we have Tupperware why wouldn't we keep using the plastic bags that we did the shopping in and take them for the next load of shopping and I think because my mum was taught tailoring at school it was one of the things that she just did at home so she would always make things for us to wear for school discos and stuff and she would go to John Lewis and go to the haberdashery and get patterns so I was just really lucky because I had a working mum and a studying and then working dad who did so many things at home that I just absorbed without realising that they had anything to do with sustainability. And it's only now, like I've been working in the space for maybe eight, nine years, that I can connect the dots. But when I started, I didn't really see that I had anything inherently in me. It was just kind of taking the time and and journeying through the fashion industry. And I started to be like, wait a minute, my mum did this, my dad did this, we always did this. So... That's kind of a bit about like me and and just how I did my journey and how I, I got to where I am now.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I do love it when people start to unravel their lives and realize, you know, from their childhood, all the pieces that actually led them to make the decisions and the career choices. But even on that subconscious level, I find it so fascinating. So it was lovely that you were able to thread that through your life. And so then tell us how you got involved in the red carpet, green dress challenge and sort of what I guess from realizing that stuff and, the you know, and sort of, I guess, moving on out out of your home with your family like
1: yeah sure so it's really funny because with red carpet green dress so I had I went to university in London I studied something that was not creative I actually studied economics finance and management and at the time I really did not enjoy it I didn't understand why it might be relevant and it was one of those degrees I honestly can safely say I did it to kind of keep my parents happy or you know because it was a, mm. a respective degree right but it was being in London and just being immersed in the scene there I had friends who had like boutiques or who were in boutiques in Covent Garden, in Portobello, in Notting Hill. And it was just the culture of London's fashion scene was very intoxicating to me because I felt that it was all of these different expressions of identity, like every single, across the spectrum. And that was really intriguing. And then I discovered South Hall where I would go and get the most gorgeous like fabrics, like silks and stuff to make dresses and And I discovered the kind of Indian, Pakistani communities there and the way that they choose their fabrics for their saris. And then I went around London to the Florentina Clothing Village, which is in North London. And I found cobblers and seamstresses and people who have been doing that trade in their family for like 70 years. And you could sit and watch them making things. And I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. So I I had my own little label that I self-finance so I was working and then I'd kind of do it um like with the money that I made and it was really fun I really enjoyed it but it got really stressful as well as I'm sure you can imagine and I think it was in 2009 or something I'd I'd showcased it this New York Nulture Fashion Week which was for really like young emerging designers and I thought that from there it was going to be like this catapult into greatness right (laughs) and actually I came back and I was so exhausted and financially just like spent and I just thought oh my goodness this this is just maybe not for me and and then I had like a a a personal tragedy with a fire and I lost loads of my things so I took a break from designing and then come Christmas time I just like I got sketching again and I I did one sketch in a notebook my mum kind of bought me for Christmas and that was what I decided to I went on to Vogue I saw a contest being advertised I literally scanned this one sketch. I didn't scan it, I used my phone to take a picture of it and then uploaded it for the contest. And basically, I didn't know what the contest was. All it said is, can you design a dress for the red carpet with a sustainable twist? And I saw sustainability as an add-on. I didn't see it as like the deal breaker to why I should enter. And I hadn't heard the word before with fashion, but I entered and I thought I could figure it out later, which is basically, you know, a lot of my philosophy sometimes (laughs) of life. Um, And I entered and it was red carpet, green dress. And I won. And I got a phone call from Susie Amos Cameron, who is the founder of the campaign and just an amazing woman. And she said, you've won. We'd love you to come um, and, you know, make your dress, you know, come over to Los Angeles, present it. And it was that was how it started for me. Red carpet, green dress was a global design competition that people like anyone could enter, including myself. So that's why, you know, that's how I got kind of pulled into, <laughs> into sustainability.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. And so when now red carpet, green dress, how has it evolved since you joined and what's your vision for what's to come in in the future?
1: Mm, that's such a great question. And you, and it really has completely evolved. So when I started, like, you know, my, like I mentioned, it was a global design competition that anyone could enter who had a passion for design and a curiosity about sustainability. And it always started looking at sustainability from the perspective of how we make things and the things we're making and what we're using and all of that good stuff. And it's evolved since then because, first of all, it's evolved to become an official partner for the Academy. So we are and we work in partnership with them to showcase sustainability on the red carpet at the Oscars every year. We also have our own kind of pre Oscar event, which is a platform to showcase the work that we're doing, to bring thought leaders in, to talk about the things that are happening in sustainable design. So, we've had people from Tesla speaking, the head of design at Tesla, across to the design team at Reformation and Amur. We collaborated with them. So, that's kind of for us, it's a platform to push out the messages we think is really, really important. But now we've gone beyond that. So, we have a material innovation lab. So, we are busy innovating materials. Currently in partnership with Tencel, but we've actually innovated some of our own materials, which is quite exciting for me because I you know all clothing uses textiles, so it's a big part of the conversation. We have um collaboration and knowledge sharing, so what that means is we work with different design colleges so most recently, actually last week, I did a great piece for Parsons. We have some great things coming up with Esmod, so we do workshops and things like that, which is more behind the scenes to be fair, where people won't necessarily you know, they won't necessarily know it, but colleges and educational institutions approach us to do workshops and talks, to do outreach to their students and to talk to their students about, you know, designing with sustainability, I would say at the heart of what they do, you know, as opposed to something they add on later. So that's quite a big thing for us. And then we have like a new thinking space, which is kind of intelligence and thought leadership. So we're working on our first report for that. So If I could put it succinctly for you, I'd say that we're passionate about education, reaching mainstream spaces, you know, so not having the conversation in silos of sustainability, but really, you know, opening it up and putting it into mainstream spaces, creating accessible solutions that people can actually be part of. And then maybe the last thing I would say is being part of creating a more like equitable and representative space. So, yeah, those are kind of our main pillars.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's great, and and it really does sound like it's it's evolved a lot since you first joined, but also that it really is involved quite deeply in in various different facets of the ecosystem for the fashion industry and for bringing that sustainability conversation also with the luxury piece. I mean, especially you know with Oscar, uh, the Oscars and Tesla and everything, you know, really like you know integrating throughout and and doing very cool partnerships. So I think that that sounds really exciting.
1: The thing that you said about, you know, luxury, it's a really, really good point, because I just don't think that sustainability and luxury were kind of intersected in any way in conversation. It was always kind of looking at how fast fashion or high street brands could communicate sustainability better. But I'm glad that we're talking about luxury because luxury is a big part of the clothing industry, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, so much of the rest of the fashion industry also takes inspiration from the luxury, you know, various forms of it, you know, haute couture really does trickle down and define a lot of what you end up seeing on ready to wear and, you know, in like other fast, uh, fast fashion stores as well. So it is really integrated. So the more that we make it luxurious and cool and something that is coming from that aspirational point, I think the more we're going to also see sustainable sustainability. sustainability trickling down throughout.
1: Yes, well said. I agree. I agree. And I think the thing about um, luxury and also these red carpet spaces is what we've always wanted to do is make sure that people are excited about sustainability and that they anticipate it and that it's something that they look forward to versus it feeling like not a chore, but something that comes with a heavy moral accusation. What we're trying to do is say that this can be exciting, this can be sexy, this can be beautiful, this can be cool, you could be proud of this, you can look good in this. And there's this amazing story as well, you know, so it's challenging perceptions and challenging, like it's seeding something that like connects sustainability with a good thought and an exciting thought versus like, oh God, I'm about to be judged okay, you're going to tell me how bad the like the planet is right now. And yeah, there is that, but there's also all this other amazing stuff too.
0: Yeah. And I love that about getting excited and anticipating sustainability and this being, you know, helping to change the dialogue and the mindset around this conversation. So with that, I'd like to zoom out a little bit more and have a look at the fashion industry as a whole right now and where it is on its own sustainability journey and kind of get your take on where we're at right
1: now. Hmm. I mean, it's such a it's such a big big question because, I mean, you it depends what like what lens you're looking through when it comes to the fashion industry. So, if you take a massive step back and you say okay, like and you identify maybe even the core groups of people that you feel. should be participating in this conversation and how are they participating in the conversation to me that could be like an easy way easier way to give a more succinct answer so what I would say is when I look at the current state of the fashion industry right now I kind of look at it through the lens of which are the five groups because I I think there are five who, who really have a responsibility in this conversation and what are they doing? What are they not doing? And I think the first one, just from like going from the beginning of the supply chain or the value cycle and seeing that is for me kind of the manufacturers, you know, the people who are making the things that we're wearing. And that to me is the and that isn't where the design sustainability begins. Sustainability begins with the design, the idea, and how you ideate that to be sustainable. But I'm just walking, I'm working from left to right because it's easier visually. So if you think about like manufacturers and how they're making things, there's a conversation to be had there about everything from social justice, um, worker security, garment workers' rights, artisans' rights, pay, transparency, transparency the conditions within which people are working, the conditions within which people are being forced to produce things, i.e. on um, a very exhaustive business model, which is just so immense. I mean, we're asking people, we're asking manufacturers to produce literally double the quantity that they did 10 years ago, if not quadruple the quantity they did 10 years ago, but with less time and with less money. So when I look at that, I think about the lack of security that manufacturers have I look at the almost near impossible conditions that they work within. I think about cotton farmers and the groups who are being funneled towards feeling like they have to kind of start putting quite, you know, obliterating chemicals to increase their yield and that whole conversation about GMO and how safe that is for the environment, how safe it is for the farmers. I think about people who are working in rubber tapping and they're kind of taking this resource from the community they live in. And and they're not being remunerated fairly to kind of maintain that community that they live in. I think about textile pollution and the textile industry and people working and living near areas where there are dye houses and the waters are running through into the waterway. So when I think about manufacturing, I see so many of the problems that are present. But I also feel like I see more opportunity as well because... There's a big conversation right now about like, you know, moving more finance towards it. You're seeing more conversation about ESG um, in finance, investing in manufacturers technology, investing in manufacturers who are saying we want to do all of these things. We need the resources to be able to do that and who are asking the brands that work with them to pay more fairly so they can do that. I see more conversation around unionization for garment workers, even with some of the companies we work with. So it's like there's positives and there's negatives, you know. And when I see manufacturing, that's kind of some of the things that I see. But then I move over to kind of brands and retailers who are in a direct relationship with these manufacturers. And I see brands and retailers who, on one hand, are kind of being a lot more vocal about sustainability and their goals. They're setting science-based targets. They're kind of putting more of a focus on material innovation, they're talking more about being transparency. They're saying, yes, we need more metrics. We need accountable systems. We need to link kind of KPIs that are not purely based on environmental performance, but that are also based on social performance, on our kind of diverse, our inclusion representation and diversity rates, women in positions of leadership, gender equality, you know, uh, donations to um, NGOs and charities. You know, these conversations are kind of, also bubbling forward a bit more and also more brands and retailers who are recognizing they need to do an environmental profit and loss, life cycle assessments, signing up to initiatives like Affirm Detox to talk about detoxing their value cycles. So I see some good things and then I see, ah, but COVID hit and like 98% of you guys did not pay your manufacturers, you know? So it's just this kind of constant, okay, this is all good talk. This is really good noise where where will it go you know what will it actually look like 2 years from now 3 years from now are you talking about a 2050 target because that's really far away you know and you're looking at what's happening in germany with the floods and and all of those terrible tragedies and you're thinking are the dots not being connected quick enough so i'm sometimes i get kind of excited and sometimes i think we're not going quick enough and then i think about citizens, another group. And I think we've got citizens who are more educated. We've got a younger generation who is climate striking, biggest kind of strike on recorded history, over 4 million school children. This is amazing. We have people who are asking their brands questions who who are calling brands out and saying, I don't understand what this means, who are going to consumer market authority and saying, can we have more legislation on what brands can claim on their packaging? Can we be more clear about what it means when they say this? And that's moving towards legislation. So citizens are really inspiring me right now. And then the last two groups quickly, I think of, are like, I think about capital allocators and investors. And there's a big movement now around banks and financial institutions investing in climate awareness strategies, preventing family separation due to climate change, who are investing more in Black-owned businesses. But is it enough? Is it quick enough? Is it tokenistic or is it kind of for the long term? Time will tell. And then the final group I think about is government. And I think about legislation. I think, oh, so much is not legislated from the chemicals we can put in our clothing across to holding companies accountable at headquarter level for injustices that are happening through their value cycle. So it's such a big question and it's really difficult to answer. But when I step back and think about it, I have a mixture of hope because I can see there are real change makers in the space, and I have a mixture of anxiety because I feel like I'm still having conversations with people about whether climate change is real and why indigenous communities should it be more visible in kind of mainstream spaces. So i can't I can't answer your question, Stephanie, but these are the things I think about when 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 I'm asked that kind of question. I
0: think that was a really, really helpful answer because even in just sharing your thought process, which is extremely extensive, by the way. So thank you for breaking it down into the five categories. It's very clear. It also allows people who have been part of this conversation for a while to actually think about, oh, I'd never thought of that before. I can do more. Right. And I think that it just having that stream of consciousness is is very very helpful because i never thought about the consumer watchdog groups right just listening to you so i'm like oh yeah that's definitely something i can look into right how do we put pressure on different points in in the system right so i think it's super helpful and, and i kind of want to hone in a little bit about that part at the end you know because I feel that way a lot where sometimes I'm really hopeful and I'm like, yes, we're making progress. And then other times stuff happens or I have conversations with people who are not in my echo chamber, who are not in my sustainability world yet. And they are so far behind and they are just not even realizing the severity and the urgency of so many of these of, of the problems that we're, we're seeing on a daily basis. And I question, you know, I get like, okay, so I don't really know what to make out of all of this. So what do you do and where do you land when, you know, you, you decided that you are still having conversations with people about whether climate change is real. I mean, yeah. If you can just share a bit more of that, cause I find myself there very often.
1: Yeah, I think. So what I do is I think about myself when I started my journey and the fact that me coming into the sustainability space, there were 100% people who were thinking, how did you not know that this was a whole thing that was happening, right? 100%. So then I try and go back to that and empathize, A, with the lack of knowledge, because I didn't have that knowledge when I started. And, that, and it was having somebody that was willing to give me a non-condescending, non-patronizing journey into the right space that laid, led me to feel welcome. So, we have to decide as a space if we want people to feel welcome and that they can access these spaces or not. Because we can relate it to anything. You could say, like, if you went to a dinner party and everybody at the table knew about this particular subject that you didn't, how would somebody make you feel interested and um, intrigued by that subject or not? Would they make you feel like, oh my God, I can't believe you didn't know this? That's ridiculous. Would they make you feel silly? Would they make you feel undermined? Or would they say, or would they give you something that would bring you in and give you a curiosity? So that's kind of how I try and approach it. And I try and do it through the lens of like, where are you coming from in this? Which speaks to that whole kind of global cultural sustainability thing. If I'm talking to someone who's maybe a parent, then my conversation might be more around, okay, so what might interest a parent? It might interest a parent to know that the way clothing is being made is not only harmful to the environment, but there are studies that show that some of the chemicals being used in fashion are harmful to, to the people wearing it. And, you know, and there's often quoted facts from one of our, our partners, Greenpeace, but, you know, that they found chemicals in a pair of kids' pajamas were found in that kid's urine 11 days after one wear. So then that parent is like, whoa, this, I didn't realize this. You know, then you can start a conversation. Okay, yeah, so fashion has impact. It's not just about impact on the environment. And this is, and then you can segue it to all the other places you want to go. So I try my best to come at it from that perspective of like, you didn't know, but now you know, how do we change your mindset? Because I think where we can sometimes fail as an industry or a space is we're not trying to change mindsets. We're trying to to accuse people and we're trying to kind of um, almost shame them into a new way of thinking. But I don't think that that works. I think what works is educating people and and meeting them in a space of education. Now, having said that, some people just don't want to be educated. Some people are very happy because their bubble means that they are not affected by climate change. They are not living in parts of the world that will be kind of immensely prone to like flooding. They are not necessarily concerned because of their wealth about the idea of starvation. So there is an element of privilege in these conversations where sometimes you do have to be, I would say, I would say you, you don't, it's not unnecessarily about calling out privilege, but it's about helping people see that your lens is very different to your neighbor's lens. And you could live in this world where you only care about things that affect people that look like you, but slowly and surely, because climate change and, and social justice and human rights is a, a growing, sprawling thing, it will 100% start affecting you. And it shouldn't take like every other person that's quite far removed from you to suffer and it to finally come into a space where you're suffering a little bit for you to care. But unfortunately, that's part of the like society that we live in. We're so desensitized and we're so in our little silos that sometimes we have to see suffering look like us before we care. It's like I was speaking to a friend the other day and I was talking about the floods in Germany. I was like, I'm so, it's so sad to me because I feel that empathy the same way if there's a a landslide in India or a mudslide in India. And they said, yeah, I know, I find it very sad, but isn't it funny that because it's happening in Europe, there is all of this outpouring of compassion, but these things like you have these landslides and mudslides in parts of Asia all the time where hundreds of people die and you just don't get that connection. And they connected it to it like sometimes people feel empathy when the victims look more like them. I could feel that as well. I definitely felt that as a Black woman. I can definitely see times when I think, God, you know, these things are happening in the Black community and there's not the same level of compassion or outcry. So there's a lot of things to unpack with what you asked me. There's racism, there's prejudice, there's privilege. But all without, all like throughout that is like a lack of education and ignorance. And not in, a, I'm not saying like in an offensive way, like, oh, they're ignorant. I'm saying, There is an ignorance about culture, history and context. And when people have that, it's the best tool you can give them to start their journey. You know, so I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a big question. And it's some of the things I think about when 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 I'm asked it.
0: No, you, that was a really very, again, very detailed and thorough answer. And I, I got a lot out of it. So thank you. Cause it's true, you know, meeting people where they're curious, creating a space for knowledge and that they feel really welcome in is, is really important. And I guess it's true. Sometimes you just have to remember that not everyone's had the awakening at the same time. It just, I think when there's so much around happening right now, you know, with the floods in Germany, and then you've got fires and hurricanes happening, you know, in the States. And then there's all the, the, everything that's happening in Asia as well. You know, there's just so much of it. And I think what I've been seeing a lot recently as well is, is how much a role the media plays in this. And this is literally something that we're covering at the moment at Green is New Black about, how so many media platforms do not connect it to climate change. And so there's so much of this is just also like the information that people receive and what, where they're consuming and the conversations they're having. And that really scares me because we're living in a state of emergency already and it's only going to get worse. So I guess, yeah, not r- really a question, but if you wanted to comment on the media
1: aspect. No, I actually think what you've just said I think it's one of the wider conversations because how do people know anything about what's going on in the world? How do we know if there's a hurricane, if there's, you know, a tsunami, if there is some sort of tragic collapse of a factory? We find that out through media, we find that out through news. So I do think that what you've just said is like a really kind of um it's uh, kind of a really insightful piece because We, I don't think we necessarily talk enough about the role that, like, media plays in educating the use of language, the positioning of imagery, the placement of specific people and their perspectives. You know, it's the reason I think media and and within media, you've got so much. You've got TV, you've got uh, magazines, you've got newspapers, you've got all of these different platforms that have an opportunity to change the face of the conversation to evoke empathy you know i read the newspaper articles sometimes and i just think wow that word just made you're trying to shape the way i see this just by that word you've used you know like for example it'll just say like it will say well you know of course xyz so it's pushing you towards well of course it should be this why should it be that and so i think when people are just kind of consuming things and they aren't questioning there's a lot of trust in in how we consume content and we don't always question the perspective that that content is coming from. So I do think that's a brilliant point. And actually, you know, one of the things I always link it to is um, James Cameron's Avatar, because if you think about it on the outset, that was a movie where everyone really celebrated the 3D element of it and how entertaining it was. But it was a form of media, it was a film, and it was a way to create a palatable, engaging and kind of exciting content, which is ultimately about sustainability, which is ultimately about a dying planet. And I think there's an opportunity for media to have a more hopeful tone, a more in the right spaces, humorous tone, um, and also like a less a kind of more educational tone. So that media question, I think, is a really important one, because you can read an article about climate change and walk away with no solutions with the idea that there's nothing on the landscape. Or you could read an article about social justice and climate change or whatever it is that you care most deeply about. And at the end of that article, you're pointed towards resources, organizations. There's a, there's a space that's being missed. You know, it just ends, whereas it could be. And if you want to do something about this, this is where you can go. If you want to find out more about this, this is what you can do. And I feel like so many articles just don't end that way.
0: Absolutely. And we actually make a very conscious effort to always have actions that people can do in all of the articles that we've done. And we've done that for a long time because of exactly that point. Some of the topics are really heavy and they need a lot of breaking down, but then they need something hopeful that we can actually say, okay, these go read more here, like uh, follow these people or like take these actions and let's keep moving forward in this journey. And I think one thing that's been really fascinating in the last year is obviously the Black Lives Matter movement, and all of the conversations that have been coming up because of that and I've seen I I stalked you and I I deep dove into a lot of your Instagram posts before I did this interview today and really was fascinating about all the different ways that you weave in the complexities that we're facing as a society right now and I saw a particular post that you talked a little bit and you touched a little bit about racism and how people don't there's still a big disconnect between people understanding how that is also connected to sustainability and the interconnections. So I wondered if you'd be happy to, to share a little bit more about that and, and what you've been sharing on your Instagram, because I think you explain it in a very clear way.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, So I think what one of the, the bigger things I think that I felt when everything happened with George Floyd and then we kind of had this tsunami of black squares, and just generally dialogue, it was just the most surreal space to be in, I'll be honest, because I would say that as a a black woman, it felt really bizarre because we've, I've been, I'll I'll just book from my perspective, because this is another thing we have to be careful of doing, I think, is not conflating experience and expertise. So as a black person, I have an experience of being a black person in this industry. But I am not an expert on the black experience, nor am I an expert on how other Black people navigate the challenges that they face, or even the solutions to this, and I think what happened during, like what happened with George Floyd and all the things with Black Scares is a perfect example. Because you had so many people who were just Black in an organisation being pulled into meetings to kind of put forward solutions when that isn't their area of expertise. They're just Black people who've had Black experiences, instead of maybe going out and cons- and getting like an external consultant who is a Black person who has studied maybe human relationship management or human resources or like conflict resolution. Like there are skilled people who are black who've trained. It was kind of like, you're black. You should have an experience. We want your knowledge. And I feel that that was really lazy. But one thing I did feel was that like it was this kind of tsunami of attention. So I've been leading Red Carpet Green Dress. I was Global Campaign Director. Then I was Campaign Director, Global Campaign Director, then VP and then CEO. And I basically was doing this the whole time. And I, you know, I didn't feel particularly visible, which is in terms of I wasn't seen by many people or platforms, but that didn't mean I didn't exist and it wasn't kind of defining my existence. But then suddenly there's like this tsunami of attention and it felt so inauthentic. It felt so inauthentic because it was like, wait a minute, are you seriously asking me to believe that you have just noticed that I am existing? So that was basically one of the, it was almost the fallacy of sustainability because it was like, we're living in a bit of a pretense here because I've been doing this for a long time. You're only approaching me because of this thing, but I've been here the whole time. So this is a very inauthentic trigger for you. You weren't moved by the work I was doing. You were moved because I fit the aesthetic of the movement you should be supporting. And that was really... It was almost like a fetishization of the black experience. And that was really exhausting. But on the other hand, you know, due to like, you know, the more visible spotlight and more light was shone on causes like and needs, like the need for more people of color and black people within positions of leadership, you know, not just in front of the cameras, beautiful models, but behind in like positions where they change and shape the industry, calling out of um, appropriation versus appreciation big conversations were happening and it was good for that reason and I think it's what we all want we want to be able to remove ourselves personally from the equation and get the work done so that increased visibility was good if you were able to direct it towards like where it should be but it also felt a little bit desperate and then it was kind of also it caused a bit of a clamor within the black community because if you think there hasn't been a spotlight on all of these amazing people and the work they've been doing for such a long time and then there was like this grab I felt that there was just a lot of tension and I don't want to say desperation, but it was overwhelming. People didn't want to miss out on the wave because they were like, what if it doesn't come again? And I felt that that was a shame as well. So it was just all of these different feelings um, and it was really difficult to navigate. But, But if you really like take a step back and you think about like, you know, the bigger issues, we know that we don't have enough representation in positions of leadership. We know that Some 80% of clothing made globally is made by women, and that's women of color. That's not just women in Kenya and Rwanda, but it's also women in Bangladesh and different parts of the world. So we aren't really showing up for that community as well as we should be because those human workers' rights, those workers' rights, and garment workers' rights are not being protected. But it's even just down to shelf space. You know, like there's that great kind of um, initiative, I think it's a 15%. Initiative by I think it's Aurora James, but you know it's a big thing where she's trying to get retailers to commit to having fifteen percent of their shelves um dedicated to black owned businesses because you have black owned businesses it can't reach consumers because they aren't given the shelf space and that's a real problem you know um in America, black people are fifteen percent of the population, so you know there's there's some big really great initiatives that finally got like a spotlight and stuff like that so If you ask me this question in a few years, I would better answer it because I'd be able to tell you if the things people did were performative or not. What I will say on a last note is that I was made the campaign director and I got my career progression through red carpet, green dress, through being, you know, just being acknowledged for my work. And so I always talk about Susie Amos Cameron because this was long before Black Squares. I always talk about her because she gave me, she saw my talent, she saw my ethic, my work ethics. She gave me an opportunity and she rewarded me as I worked. And it was kind of really funny because people are like, oh, how does it feel being a black CEO? And it's like, yeah, I mean, great, because I've worked really hard and I've been acknowledged every single step of the way. And so that's somebody I can see as very much an ally because there was no reason for it to be performative. People weren't looking. In fact, it was probably more of a discredit or it was more difficult for her or for me, sometimes being in those meetings because people really wanted to just speak to her And she would always say, you need to ask Samata. she's the leader in the space. So I've had a really fortunate experience of being in a leadership position with somebody that's empowered me, but there aren't enough people doing that. So... I'm so sorry, my answers are far too long, but yeah, uh,
0: this is they are absolutely picks. not. I'm loving your answers; they're really informative, and you know, I was really excited to do this interview because I, as I said, I, I read so many of your posts, and we did have that pre-call beforehand, and I remember just thinking how beautifully and eloquently you describe things, but also how much of a picture you can present, you know, and and I think that's really important. So yes, please keep your long answers. They're great. I'm really enjoying listening to you. (laughs) So one of your big passions as well that I was reading about is really looking at cultural sustainability and inclusivity and everything we've just sort of discussed. So what does this really mean to you and how do you think moving forward the industry could make sure that it is more inclusive and not just performative?
1: Mm, mm, good question. So, I think for me, when I think about this phrase of global cultural sustainability, I think about just the, the lens. I wish I had another word. I need to find another word. I'll find another word. But um, I think it's the perspective that we look at sustainability and the conversations that we're looking to have about sustainability and who we're looking to have these conversations with and how, high, how heavily do we weight these different people's perspectives so and the reason that that's important for me is because we have a society that's so diverse and represents different journeys different socioeconomic groups different languages i talk about this a lot and i'm going to actually be talk about this so much more it gets me that we work in sustainability and people don't have tolerance for language I mean, i've been in a few rooms and, and i've been in a few conversations someone's like oh i think we should get like this person speaking like oh the language i don't really the accent will be problematic and i'm like what are you talking about What are you talking about? The fact that someone has an accent purely means that they're able to speak more than one language. And I think that is an amazing asset. So it's challenging all of these different things. And it's saying, can we have conversations about sustainability that name different environmental leaders, for example? And I always say this because I love David Attenborough. I love Jane Goodall. But most people can only name them. Why? There are so many amazing people around the world who have been pioneering sustainability. Like, that, there's that incredible Brazilian rubber tapper and land rights leader, Chico Mendes. Like, there's lots of people that have been doing amazing work. So this is part of it. Like, it's who we name as our ambassadors. It's who we name as our leaders. And then it's like this wider conversation, you know, what's happening right now with people saying, oh, indigenous cultures are shaping biodiversity. Indigenous cultures have inherent knowledge about kind of land conservation indigenous people have this indigenous people have that okay so where are they in the conversations where are they in the kind of laudits and praise where are they in the summits where is their voice in you know where are the subtitles if you can't understand the the languages that they're speaking because that's not their problem it's yours you know so it's kind of this is part of it as well and then it's language you know and to me global cultural sustainability it's like it's about culture as in you travel the world and you experience different cultures but it's about the culture within communities too it's about for example the black culture and the way that i grew up as a british-born Ghanaian seeing sustainability through my parents eyes and the fact that there are many people who have the same experience as me you know my i speak to different sustainability leaders a lot and they're like well we always had we always thrifted it's so annoying that people are now saying it like it's this cool thing to do It just feels like because it has a different packaging, it's more palatable. And I feel that too. So I think global cultural sustainability for me is a way to kind of advocate for more accessible language, more representational industry, like a broader cultural and personal insight into clothes wearers across the globe. And it's an opportunity to see people's points of view, who they are, where they come from, how they live, what they grew up around it's an opportunity to educate ourselves and not to be seen as educators but to be ready to be educated and that's kind of if I could say it that's the best way I can say it to be honest with you I, I remember just the last thing I remember a quote from Vivian Westwood when we worked with her she said she said we're losing sight of culture we've become so uncultured and she just made me think oh I just need to read more books I need to travel more I need to digest what's happening around me because that's how I'm going to understand what we're facing right now. So I think that's what it is. It's a desire to be more educated, but not educated in our history, educated in other people's histories and experiences as well. Yeah. Thank
0: you so much for sharing. I think it's, it's a really important points and also bringing together and, and, and really bringing the, especially the indigenous voices. I think this is such a crucial part that hopefully now after the last year, more and more people, especially in sustainability, the ones running the events and, you know, creating media space are, are really highlighting those, those voices more. So I was wanted to, share one of the quotes I read of yours, which was, if you don't have optimism that things can change, don't work in sustainability. And I thought that was a really important point because sometimes I do get jaded. I do lose the optimism sometimes. And but of course, you know, it doesn't last for very long, but I think that does happen. So I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your concept of hope and optimism when it comes to to the bigger sustainability and climate change topics.
1: Yeah, sure. And the reason I said that was because I had a conversation with someone who was just so condescending. It just really irritated me because we were talking about things and she was like, oh, just bless your optimism. And I was like, you know, it was kind of a there, there, dear thing. And I just thought, oh, dear. <laughs> you know, I was like, why are you in this space? Because we are not working in this space to be fruitless. We're not working in this space to not see progress. We're not working in this space to have things say exactly the way that they are. Like, as a person, as an organization, I don't dedicate my time to things that are going to go nowhere. And so it was kind of, I wanted to put the word hope in there because I think hope people see hope as like this um, intangible, like sometimes airy-fairy thing. But to me, it's a feeling of an expectation for a particular thing to happen. I expect this is going to change and I have a feeling of trust in that expectation. So I was trying to say, why work in this space if you don't have the expectation or you don't trust that things are going to be different, then maybe you should not be working in this space. And that isn't about being constantly happy. I think people get confused. Being hopeful doesn't mean that you're kind of on constantly on a high and like, yay, the grass is green, because you know that things are difficult. You You have down days, you have bad days, you get low, you get anxious. But it's just that what keeps you going is the expectation that things are going to change. The trust you have that things are going to get better, you know, and that that kind of is that's what it was about for me. And I wanted to put that out there because I think too many people are kind of have a lot of naysayers in their face. And it's like, well, then don't be in this space, you know, then don't don't do the work. Don't be in this space. Don't take the job up. Because there are plenty of people who'd want to be in that job that think they can make a difference and they're expecting a difference to be made. So yeah, that's what I meant by that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I love it. And again, just a really solid point on you can be hopeful without having to be pinging off the walls in positivity all the time. (laughs) So It's more like a a constant truth that you hold onto in times of those negativity and of those times of jadedness or whatever else is happening at the time. There's still that inner strength knowing that there is still hope. (laughs) So I, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. And, uh, I, I was curious and I wanted to circle back because at the very beginning of the conversation, you said, you know, you entered it and you'd figured it out later. And I kind of wanted to circle back because I thought that was really interesting and you've done amazing work obviously. And, and you've obviously had a beautiful supportive environment in that work to do that as well. But what is your kind of life mantra or your view on, on keeping to go and, and how you sort of overcome the challenges and the difficulties in your life like what is it that you have as a mindset that that allows you to be that confident or to just figure it out later or other things along that to that line that you could maybe sort of share as well
1: I think I might put it down to upbringing because I think my mom would always just say to me like as for you you know anything you put your mind to you can do and she always just used to say that to me like when I was growing up and it gave me so much confidence you know and now I'm like a mum. I've got my three-year-old. I try and, you know, say really positive things to him as well. Even when he's sleeping, I go into his room when he's sleeping and I just say things to him. I just say, you're amazing. We love you. People love spending time with you. You know, you, you're you so funny. You know, I just tell him things because I just think we absorb these things into who we are. And I'm glad he's never woken up, by the way, because <laughs> he'll just be like, what, what are you doing in here, mom? But He's three years old, but, you know, I believe in the power of what you say to people and the confidence you can give them. And so my mum would always say those things to me. And even now she still says it like, oh, as for you. And then I think my dad named me after this particular aunt who was like a complete fire starter. So she she would basically go into because my dad. My dad's father was a chief. He was Yonah Abdullahi, the second or 3rd I'm really sorry, I can't remember. But he was a chief of Sablugu, which is a village in Ghana. And so he was a very respected man. It's like the equivalent of a king. And so my aunt would go into the king's circle and she would, and it was always all men, and she would go in and she would just like sit down and say, uh, you know, she'd be the voice of the people that couldn't be in the room, right? And she would question him and she would mock him. And she would do it in a really cheeky way that she kind of got away with it. So, yeah, it was kind of like they gave me this name. And I think they were kind of initially like, oh, my goodness, if you give her this name, like (laughs) she's going to take after this woman. In a way, I have. (laughs) But it was like they already gave me that. They gave me that legacy by my name. So I think I do have a confidence, but I just um, I think we are more capable than we give ourselves credit for. So that's the best way to answer your question, I think. That's the way I saw it when I saw that question. I was like, with a sustainable twist, I can read, I can learn. I'm curious. And I think the missing component is that something has to be missing. I feel like we go on our biggest journeys. We go on when something is missing. I wasn't satisfied something was missing. And I think when people feel like something is missing, then you get that's when that shift happens. If they feel full and content, it's hard to see them. But when you get someone when they're like, yeah, something's missing, I just feel like there's something I want, I don't have or there's I don't understand something that I want to understand. And that's how it got me. I was in a space where I was ready. So maybe it's a combination of nature and just like a space of opportunity.
0: Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And so when you're having a difficult day, what are some of the tools or practices that you kind of pull on to support
1: yourself? Um, If I'm having a difficult day. Now I would say like I have a really wonderful partner and I've got this lovely 3 year old and I do look at him and go okay it's kind of for you sometimes it's just for him you know it's like I'm only like and sometimes it's for me too but sometimes when I I don't have anything for myself I'm like I'm just doing this for you and that's fine but in terms of resources you know I try um I have my like women's kind of collective the tribe and I put out lots of kind of I try and put out good content with that like stuff that makes people just celebrate who they are and I try not to just look at what tomorrow might be I try and just look at what I have today which is really difficult sometimes because I I I struggle with it but I try and just think about what do I have how can I stop focusing on what I don't have like what can I look at that I have you know and and that's try that's literally how I do it there's no there's no other secret it's like I just try and shift my mindset as much as I can to what do I have? What's a good thing I can focus on that I can celebrate? And, and, and that's what I do, you know?
0: Mm, yeah, thank you. And I've seen a lot more conversations and commentary recently on why we need to stop glorifying being busy. And this is something that I've seen you were vocal on as well. So why do you think this is important?
1: Yeah, because the word people use the word busy like a badge of honor, don't they? You ask people how they are sometimes. Mm-hmm. Some people don't. Some people are really stressed out, you know? Some people are like, I'm so busy. But some people are, oh, I'm just so busy. It's been this, it's been that, it's been that. And people are like, oh, wow. And you kind of go, oh, wow. And I think, oh, but busy doesn't always mean you're being efficient. It doesn't mean that you're progressing. It doesn't mean that you're happy. It doesn't mean you're satisfied. It doesn't mean anything, really. It just means you've got lots of things that are happening. But are they the things that you want to be happening? Do you feel like using your time fairly are you busy and you're kind of miserable because you're not spending time with the people you love? So I think the glorify. when I said, you know, we need to stop glorifying busy, it was like we need to kind of maybe check in with people and and also not be so hard on ourselves because we're so busy, but we're not giving ourselves kindness. We're not giving ourselves like love. We're not giving ourselves time out. And when you work in um, sustainability specifically, I do feel like it's really easy to, But you're really, 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 really hard on yourself because you're always looking at like the state of the world, the state of the planet, the state of the this. And we glorify being busy. And I think we're, you know, it's like we're human beings, not human doings. You know, someone said that to me the other day and I was like, yeah, exactly. So I try and shift the the language and just say, are you happy? Are you being effective? Do you feel like you're progressing? Like, are those the kind of things that are happening for you? And if not, like, what changes do you need to make? And it's something I think about with like leadership role as well. I'm busy but how can I be more efficient so like people who are working with me are happy and stuff like that and you know so I'm not just being busy but I'm kind of bringing good stuff to the table as well.
0: Yeah absolutely and Just remembering that life is supposed to be lived and to have fun as well and not get so lost in the work. And I think especially in the activist space, we see that a lot, you know, people are so passionate and also so distressed, I think, about everything they're seeing around them that they do get kind of lost in it sometimes. So I think the more we can have this conversation around rest as a form of resistance and, you know, having moments to just be joyful and happy away from everything that may be stressing you out or tearing you down, I think is something really beautiful and should be celebrated and discussed more. So I think that's lovely that you also try to create that for your team. And so how do you think we can live wide awake?
1: Oh, that's a good one. I think living wide awake is almost, and I mean, people would say, oh, live in the present, live in today. And that's everything I feel as well. But I think living wide awake is maybe just realizing that the the opportunity we have right now is almost, I mean, I it's like what I want my legacy to be in a way. It's kind of living wide awake for me now is kind of how can I connect? How can the connections I have be more meaningful? Like in everything I'm doing, how can I not rush through this walk so I can enjoy my walk? How can I not rush through this meal so I can enjoy this food? How can I not rush through things because I have these other things to be be at? So I can enjoy this thing more because at the end of the day, this is the thing I'm living. So I almost feel like maybe how we can be more awake or live, live wide awake is by slowing down the things that need to be slowed down. And that, that that's maybe just me speaking from my personal perspective, but it's allowing myself more time to get from one place to another. Right. So that I'm enjoying the journey instead of just kind of looking at the clock. And then I can kind of, oh, yeah, cool. That's a good song one instead of being like, oh, God, that like I've got to get somewhere. So I don't know that. I, I hope that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Enjoy the journey. Don't look at the clock. I think that was uh, <laughs> one of my favorite lines <laughs> at the end there. That's great. <laughs> well, Samata, thank you so much. That was really insightful. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to you and learned a lot from our conversation. So I really appreciate you taking the time. I know this is a very busy week for you. So thank you for that.
1: thank you so much
0: yes beautiful three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Samata firstly meet people where they are on their journey in sustainability create a welcome space where their curiosities can be sparked and through the lens that they are looking through Secondly, being hopeful doesn't mean that things are rosy all the time. It is a deep truth and knowing that things will get better and trust that things will change. And thirdly, enjoy the journey. Don't look at the clock. Now is what you are living. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Away. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you, ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake.